John chapter 11, which records for us Jesus' marvelous one uh, miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. We read the first 46 verses of John chapter 11. The text will be verse 35. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, the twin, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs off, almost two miles. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, 
Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house, and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus therefore again groaning in himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. The text is verse 35, Jesus wept. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, of all the miracles that Jesus performed, the miracles of raising someone from the dead are arguably the most wonderful and impressive. They showcase, unlike anything else, Jesus' power to bring life out of death. And that's really what Jesus' miracles are about, bringing forth life out of death. And among the instances where Jesus performs the miracle of raising someone from the dead, this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead is the most wonderful and impressive. And so we could say that this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead is the greatest of all the miracles that Jesus performed throughout his earthly ministry. This miracle was Jesus' final public miracle. And as such, it was, in a sense, the capstone 
to all his miracles. This miracle was done at a most significant time in Jesus' earthly ministry. It really sets the stage for the last weeks of Jesus' life. It was this miracle that moved the Jewish leaders to finally make plans to get rid of Jesus once and for all. And it was this miracle that would showcase in a very deep and powerful way that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's exactly what Jesus impresses upon Mary before, or Martha, just before this miracle. And that's exactly what Jesus impresses upon everyone in the performance of this miracle. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is God. And Jesus doesn't draw his life from anyone else or anywhere else, but life itself exists in Jesus. Jesus is life. That is his nature. And Jesus is eternal life. Jesus has been alive eternally. He is the one who in the beginning gave life to every creature. He is God of God, light of light, true God of true God. And he is also the one who is going to obtain eternal life for his own people through his suffering and death on the cross. And really, this whole event in John chapter 11 is a prelude. And it's a foreshadowing of the great wonder, that great miracle, you might say, that Jesus will perform through his own death and resurrection in Jerusalem. Jesus will conquer death and the grave and make full satisfaction for all our sin so that Jesus can impart to us not just physical life, like he did with Lazarus in this miracle, but so that he can impart unto us spiritual, eternal life. This event is an entirely astonishing and powerful event. I think that comes out even when you read the passage. Now, our focus this afternoon is going to be on something slightly different than the miracle itself. Our focus is going to be on the fact that Jesus wept. And that's an astonishing thing, too. In the midst of this chapter that reveals to us so powerfully Jesus' deity, that Jesus is God, we also, at the exact same time, have a a beautiful revelation of Jesus' humanity. Jesus is not just the God of life. But Jesus is also the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's what we're going to look at this evening. We take as our theme, Jesus wept. We look at two things. First, we look at the activity of Jesus weeping. And then second, we look at the significance for us. Now, to understand this passage and what is going on here, let me give you a few pieces of information. Back in Jesus' day, when a person died that person would ordinarily be buried the self-same day. There was no embalming. The weather was hot. hot, And so what the people would do was this. As, as soon as someone died, the news would spread to family and friends and acquaintances. They would immediately come over, and then they would make a procession to the burial plot. And they would bury the body, and then they would stay with the family for about a week. And this was the custom. The people would stay with the family for about a week and console and comfort the family. And then they would even hire professional mourners that would mourn for the family. And all these family and friends and acquaintances would stay with the family, spending time with them, mourning with them, wailing for the death of their loved one. They they wouldn't just sit quietly and say nothing, but they would wail. And they would wail loudly. And that was the custom. That's what the people expected to be done. It was tradition, just like we have our traditions, like a a meal 
after you bury someone. Or maybe you have a different tradition here in Iowa. But that's, that's what they did too. They had a meal, but then they also had these other things as well. And I say all of that because this is what is happening when Jesus and his disciples approach the village of Bethany and approach the house of Mary and Martha four days after Lazarus has died. The people are still there. They are still mourning with Mary and Martha. And because Mary and Martha and Lazarus were a distinguished family in the village of Bethany, there could have been dozens of people here at the time that Jesus and his disciples arrived. There could have been even around 100 people at the house of Mary and Martha. So that, to explain a little bit of what's going on here. So Jesus and his disciples come to Bethany. Martha hears from someone that Jesus is coming, and Martha, as is typical of Martha, runs out to meet him. Mary stays behind in the house, surrounded by her comforters. Martha goes out to meet Jesus. And she's probably very emotional, mourning over the death of her dear brother. And she says to Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. She's still grieving, of course, over her brother's death. But the point is, it's all very fresh in her mind. When Jesus tells her that he is the resurrection and the life, and he gives her comfort in the midst of her sorrow. And then we may suppose that after Jesus talks privately with Martha, that he also wanted to talk privately with Mary. So he probably sent Martha back to fetch Mary so that Jesus could speak privately to Mary as well. That would explain the last part of verse 28. Martha calls Mary privately and tells her, Jesus wants to speak with you. And so Mary quickly darts off. Well, the crowd of people that's comforting Mary assumes that Mary wants to go back to the graveside to visit the graveside once again and mourn once again there. So the group of people rush out with Mary to the graveside. And that's where Jesus meets Mary. And what does Mary do? We read in verse 32 that when Mary was come to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And no doubt Mary too is full of emotion. In fact, we read in verse 33 that Jesus sees Mary weeping. And Jesus sees the whole group of people weeping. And we read in verse 33 that Jesus groaned in the spirit and was troubled. This is where we need to start paying attention to some of the language in the passage. Starting in verse 33. In verse 33 we read that Mary was weeping. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping. And the word that is used for weeping in verse 33 is not the same word that is used in verse 35 where we read that Jesus wept. In verse 33, when it says that Mary was weeping, the word that is used is a word that refers to a loud wailing, a noisy kind of weeping. It refers to the act of sobbing. Mary was sobbing and the people with her were sobbing as well. Then in verse 33, we read that Jesus responded to Mary's weeping with groaning. He groaned in the spirit. And that word groaning is also an interesting word. It's a word that has the idea of a deep inward emotion. It's the kind of word that refers to a deep 
inner pain. And in addition to that, significantly, it really has the idea of being burdened with anger, a deep inner pain that's mingled with anger. Literally, it's a word that refers to the snorting of a horse. Think of a horse snorting with rage. That's the word groaning in verse 33. It's a word that has the idea of a deep inward moving of indignation and outrage. Then we also read at the end of verse 33 that Jesus was troubled. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And that word troubled means to be agitated. It means to be stirred up or irritated. And when you take this word uh, troubled with the word groaned, then it means that Jesus was stirred up with anger. He was irritated with, with anger. His anger was one of fury. He's shaking with anger. That's the idea. Now if we jump down to verse 38... We see that as Jesus approached the grave, he was still groaning. In verse 38, it's the same word that is used back in verse 33. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. Jesus approaches the graveside of Lazarus, and he is burdened with anger, indignation, and outrage. And we'll get to the meaning of this anger in a moment. But we go back to verse 33, and we read that Jesus is groaning in the spirit, and is troubled. Then in verse 34, Jesus asks where they have laid Lazarus, and those who love Jesus step up to show Jesus where Lazarus was buried. And then we read in verse 35 that Jesus wept. And the word wept here in verse 35, as I said, is a different word than in verse 33. It's the word that refers to shedding tears. It doesn't mean that Jesus started wailing and sobbing with everyone else, but it means that Jesus started to weep tears. Jesus is groaning, he is agitated, and he is silently shedding tears. Now before we go any further, we need to ask the question, what is happening here? And why is Jesus behaving this way? And I want to point out especially two things. First, in this weeping, it's, it's very striking, Jesus is showing his great empathy towards Mary and Martha and towards his people. These tears are striking and they are very striking when you consider that Jesus already knows how this event is going to turn out. Jesus knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead and he knows that there's going to be a happy ending by the end of the day. But nevertheless, in this moment, Jesus begins to cry. And he's not just crying over the death of Lazarus, but he is crying because he is entering into the sorrow of Mary and Martha and his people in this very sad event. That's astonishing. Jesus could have said, Cheer up, Mary. Cheer up, Martha. I will raise Lazarus from the dead for you. Don't cry. Don't, don't cry, people. It's going to be okay. I'll make it work out. He doesn't do that. But instead, he begins to cry with them. This is Jesus, beloved. God Almighty, come in the flesh. This is the one who is himself the resurrection and the life, and he is crying with his people. Isn't that amazing? He is fully entering into their grief 
and into their pain. And he is feeling their grief and their pain with them. And it becomes his grief. And it becomes his pain. Even to the point where he himself is crying with them. If I may put it another way, this is our king, beloved. This is the one who even right now rules exalted over heaven and earth at God's right hand. This is the one who has the power to crush the head of Satan. And he is the one exalted over all. And here he is crying. And he is crying because he is feeling the pain of his people. And it moves him to cry too. In his fullness of love for his people, he sheds tears of sorrow for them. Jesus knows what it is to feel the pain of death, beloved. He knows what it is to feel the painful effects of sin. He has entered into that pain with us. That's the first thing I want to point out. The second thing that needs to be pointed out is this. Jesus is also angry. He's groaning in his spirit. He is troubled. He is agitated. He is outraged. But why is he outraged? Well, he is agitated not because of all the people who are wailing and sobbing, and perhaps many of them, or at least some of them, are just putting on a show. That's not why Jesus is agitated and furious. Rather, he is groaning with outrage and fury because as he looks all around him, he sees the effects of what Satan has done. And he sees the effects of sin. And as Jesus comes to the graveside of Lazarus, Jesus is witnessing firsthand the wreckage and carnage caused by sin. And in all of what he sees, he sees the fingerprints of his hated enemy, the devil. And what does Jesus see? He sees death. And death is the object of his wrath. Because you see, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the life, and death is his enemy, and death is the enemy of his people. And behind all this death, Jesus also sees him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And he sees in this event how death seems to be having its way with his people, his precious people, his precious sheep. And in a sense, that's how we need to understand this whole miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That's not really in the scope of the sermon this afternoon, but it's worth mentioning In Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is not just bringing Lazarus back from the dead. But Jesus in this event is making another declaration of warfare. He's making another declaration of warfare against the devil. He is showing the devil and he is showing the whole world what he came to do. Jesus came to destroy death, to conquer the grave, to crush the head of him who had the power of death. This is why Jesus took upon himself our flesh and blood. Hebrews 2 verse 14 puts it beautifully. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is, the devil. And as John Calvin puts it, When Jesus approaches the grave of Lazarus, he does not approach the grave of Lazarus as an idle spectator, but, Calvin says, as a champion 
as a champion who prepares for a contest. A, a soldier in the army preparing for a warfare. And that's why he groans again in verse 38. Because, as Calvin writes, the violent tyranny of death which he had to conquer is placed before his eyes. That's what's going on here. Maybe I can put it this way. In all these emotions that we come across in this passage, what we are seeing is the heart of Jesus as it goes out for the salvation of his people. He feels our sufferings. He feels with us the pangs of death. He feels for himself the sorrows of the last enemy, death and the grave. He feels it. And he is deeply moved to deliver his people from it. So much so does Jesus feel it that his hatred and anger against Satan waxes hot even as he sheds tears of sorrow and empathy for Martha and Mary. In fact, it is his love for his people that will not allow him to remain indifferent towards their enemies. That's why he's groaning and he is troubled. Isn't that amazing? Jesus knows what it is to grieve over the reality and the consequences of sin. And Jesus knows what it is to be burdened with outrage. Maybe you've had that feeling before. What it is to be burdened with outrage over the power of sin and the work of the devil. Jesus knows these things, beloved. He feels these things. And one thing I want to point out before we move on is this. Throughout his earthly ministry, this is always who Jesus was. The way that Jesus behaves here in John chapter 11 is not exceptional. We need to understand that this is always how Jesus behaved in his earthly ministry. This is who Jesus is. Consider a few passages. When the blind and the lame and the afflicted called out to Jesus, Jesus responded with pity and compassion. Compassion is is perhaps the best word that captures Jesus' emotion during his earthly ministry. When blind Bartimaeus comes out to Jesus and cries out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. How did Jesus respond? We read, Jesus had compassion on him. When a leper knelt down and beseeched Jesus and said, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. How did Jesus respond? We read, And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and saith unto him, I will. Be thou clean. And when the woman who was a sinner approached Jesus in the house of Simon the Pharisee and her tears started dropping on Jesus' feet, how did Jesus respond? We read that when Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her. And that word compassion that we come across over and over again, it doesn't refer to a mere passing pity. It refers to a depth of of feeling, in which your feelings and longings churn within you. Literally, the reference is to one's bowels. Think of the phrase, bowels of mercies, one's intestines, a deep gut feeling of emotion. That's what Jesus had over and over again throughout his earthly ministry when he had compassion. He had a deep gut feeling, bowels of mercies. That's the word compassion. But if you were to focus merely on the idea of weeping, you would also see that Jesus wept more than once in his earthly ministry. 
Luke 19, verse 41, we read that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. And the word used there is actually the word that means sobbing, a loud noise. Jesus sobbed over the city of Jerusalem. In Hebrews 5, verse 7, we have a very powerful verse. In Hebrews 5, verse 7 and 8, we read that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with strong cryings and tears. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. This is Jesus who took upon himself our flesh, who came in our skin, who stood in our shoes and experienced what we experience. And as the book of Hebrews says, he was tempted, he was tested in all points like as we are. In all his human faculties, in his emotions too, he was tested and he was tried. He had a soul and he had a heart that could be smitten with sorrow, just like you and me. As the prophecy of Isaiah puts it, he was the man of sorrows. This is his humanity, beloved. And this is also how Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for us. Just another aspect of it. He felt pain. And he perfectly endured it. And he perfectly experienced it as our substitute. Just like we experience it. But he kept it. He kept righteous. And he endured it. And he kept the law for us in this aspect too. In his emotional life. He kept God's law perfectly. But again, it's not just Jesus' compassion and weeping that we see throughout his earthly ministry. It's also his holy anger. We read of that in the text. Think of other examples in, in Jesus' earthly ministry. When Jesus made a whip and he drove out the buyers and sellers from the temple. Think of how Jesus warns. We read it this morning. He warns against those who offend the least of his disciples. Think of how Jesus spends an entire chapter speaking judgment upon the scribes and Pharisees. He's angry He's moved with outrage. He's groaning in his spirit and was troubled. And why? Because he saw how wickedness was oppressing God's people. He saw how wickedness was also defiling God's holy name. And he groaned with outrage and agitation. And again, why does Jesus get angry? Because his heart is devoted to God and because his heart is also full of compassion towards his people. Jesus does not take lightly the sufferings that his people go through. As the onlookers even say in verse 36, Behold how he loved him. Yes, Jesus loves his people and he loves his people fiercely. He is moved with emotion over the sorrows and sufferings of his people. So we could say this is his humanity. We see his humanity, congregation. But we can also say at the exact same time, this is his deity. Because in all these events, Jesus is reflecting the heart of God to us. Jesus is the image of God. God's own compassion and God's own holy love for his people is being reflected right here in his son, Jesus Christ, in John chapter 11. Yes, we understand God is the most blessed one. God does not weep. However, God is also the one who with perfect love and perfect compassion and perfect holiness identifies himself with the experiences of his people. That's what he's doing here in this chapter. 
And that's what makes this passage in John chapter 11 so amazing. Yes, the power of God is on display in this passage. He's the resurrection and the life. He raises Lazarus from the dead. But here in John chapter 11, the compassion of God is put on display at the exact same time. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And here we see that God's power, His glorious power and His unspeakable compassion are in perfect harmony, working together for the salvation of His people. And that comes to perfect expression in the behavior of Jesus here in John chapter 11. This is a very striking and beautiful event. That's the activity of Jesus weeping. Well, now we should ask the question, what does this mean for us? What's the significance for us? Well, there's much, I think, that could be said. I have especially four things this afternoon to point out. And the first thing is this. I think it's already been made clear. Beloved, Jesus understands you. Jesus understands you. He understands your sighs. He understands your groans. He understands your tears. He understands your sobs. He understands your pain. He understands your heartache. He understands your outrage against sin. In fact, Jesus understands your feelings even better than you yourself because Jesus felt these exact same things only deeper and even more keenly than you ever have. Let me put it this way. The fall into sin ruined us in very deep and profound ways so that throughout the fall, even our emotional life is affected by the fall. And even though we've been regenerated, there is still much within us that is broken and damaged And that's the case also with our emotions. So that through the fall into sin, our emotions have a tendency to overreact to things. And we know, on the other hand, through the fall, our emotions have a tendency to underreact. It's hard to get it right, isn't it? Why are we so often numb to the things we see happening around us? Why Why is it sometimes so hard to sympathize and empathize with others? Because... By nature, we are selfish, and by nature, we are sinners. And that has affected us. That does affect us. But now here is Jesus, beloved, the sinless man. Now, how does a sinless man look at all the suffering and death that mars this fallen world? He looks at it a little differently than we do, doesn't he? His emotions are perfectly in tune with what's going on around him. And his emotions are not restricted by the dullness That clouds our emotions. So that he feels emotions more deeply. He sees things more clearly for what they are. And he experiences events more purely. Perfect, undefiled, righteous anger. And perfect, unfiltered, intense compassion and sorrow. Unrestricted by the sinful self-absorption and self-centeredness that so often restricts our own compassion and sorrow. Jesus had a perfect emotional life. An emotional life characterized on the one hand by perfect control and balance and proportion, and yet on the other hand characterized by an unfathomable depth of feeling. But we might say, well now Jesus is in heaven. Does he experience still these same things today? Well, we can ask the question, what does the book of Hebrews say? 
The book of Hebrews tells us that it talks so much about how Jesus wept tears, strong cryings. It tells us how Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest and he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And then do you remember how the book of Hebrews ends? In chapter 13, it says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is still who your Jesus is today, beloved. He understands your heart. Jesus' heart is in everything he does still today. He is not just ruling the world without giving any attention to his people, but he is ruling the world with his heart constantly going out to his people in love. And he does all things as their Lord and their Savior. He understands our feelings and he is with us in those feelings. He is our head. And just as your physical head is in tune with what's going on in the body and it feels the pain of the body, just so Jesus as the head of the church is in tune with the members of his body, the church. He understands. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's the first thing. Jesus understands, beloved. Jesus understands you. The second thing we can say is this. What all this means for us is that we must not be afraid to weep. Jesus was not a stoic who was always giving a stiff upper lip. No, Jesus allowed himself to feel pain. And this is even how he honored his heavenly father in his earthly life. And the point is, this too is how we honor the Lord, our God, in our lives. As we live out of Christ, we can feel things. And we can feel things deeply. Yes, we need to be watchful. We need to keep our emotions in control. We must not be ruled by our emotions. And that can be a struggle for us. But I think there's also sometimes a tendency to avoid deep emotions because it, it feels vulnerable, because it's painful. Sometimes we just don't want to deal with our emotions. We, we push them off to the side. It hurts too much. But we should at least ask the question, does that honor God? I don't think so. When we feel deeply, when we groan with outrage, over the devastation that sin and death brings into our lives, when we shed tears over the pain and sorrow that is found in this world, that is a way in which we honor the Lord. We feel deeply and we bring our emotions to the Lord. And we acknowledge that He is our only comfort in this life. And He is the only one who truly understands and He is the only one who can help and He will help. And we commit ourselves to him who judges righteously, who is the father of mercies, and he is honored in all of this. God gave us our emotions so that we can honor and worship him through our emotions. Isn't that what the Psalms are all about? Isn't that what singing from our heart is all about? Doesn't the Bible command us to weep with those who weep? and rejoice with those who rejoice, we are commanded to exercise this part of our human nature to God's glory. And the point is, this evening, the point is, God is safe. God is safe. God is good. You can bring your emotions to Him. You can trust Him with your emotions, and He will bless you as you lay down your emotions before Him. And this brings us to the third thing we can say, and that's this. We have the calling to reflect Christ towards each other, don't we? 
we must reflect Christ towards each other. Romans 12, verse 15. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. This is the great privilege we are given in Christ, that we can come alongside God's people and share with them in their emotions and be a blessing to them in that way. Sometimes someone is hurting and we don't know what to say and we don't know what to do. And so often what we're inclined to do is keep our distance. As if, you know, maybe we're thinking we're respecting them, we don't want to pry, but we keep our distance. Well, that's not what Jesus did, is it? Just think about the incarnation itself. God coming in the flesh. God in love sees his elect people. He sees them in their sin and their sorrow. And God didn't keep his distance. But in his love he came down to us to feel our sorrow with us and to deliver us from it. He entered into our lives. And in Jesus Christ we have the great privilege of reflecting that goodness of God in our lives towards each other. We enter into each other's lives as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Finally, the significance of Jesus weeping for us is this. Because Jesus shed tears. God in the flesh shedding tears. And because Jesus experienced the fullness of our life under the burden and guilt of sin, and he experienced it and he endured it perfectly, righteously, we know that there is also coming a day when God will wipe away all our tears from our eyes. This text, John chapter 11, verse 35, is in a sense a summary of the whole gospel. Isn't it? Jesus wept. Jesus, God in the flesh, he came in our flesh, he became a man of sorrows, He bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. And it led him not only to the point where he shed tears, but it ultimately led him to the point where he shed his own blood on the cross in order to take away those tears, in order to take our our tears, in order to take away our pain, and in order that he might give us everlasting life and joy and peace and happiness and obtain the victory over death and the grave and sin. And for us, having this knowledge that all our sins are forgiven us, seeing Jesus Christ, who He is as our Savior, already now in this life our tears are being wiped away. They are. But there are still so many tears that we shed in this earthly life. That's the reality too. Our Lord Jesus teaches us that there is a day coming when we will be delivered from this valley of tears. All our tears will be wiped away and we will enter into the perfect joy of our Lord. Not you understand because our sorrow will be suppressed, shoved far, far away. No, but because our sorrow will be perfectly overtaken by joy and peace and we will enjoy the victory over sin and death in perfect glory. This is who Jesus is, beloved. This is what Jesus did. He wept. And this is what Jesus still does today. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. May God drive these truths deeper into our hearts. In the end, that we might exalt Him. We might see His salvation. We might exalt Him and give Him the glory.
Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, Thou art awesome in all Thy goodness and in the wonder of salvation. Thy work is unfathomable. We thank Thee, Father, for giving us another glimpse of the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ, seeing Him as the one who wept. We know He's also the one who reigns. We thank Thee, Lord, that We understand he knows us and he loves us and he cares for us. We pray that this preaching might be driven into our hearts and it might shape our lives, that we might see thy great salvation and we might have joy in thee. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We sing together Psalter number 77.